Welcome to the Global Investor Podcast, a show that focuses on helping foreign investors enter the lucrative U.S. real estate market. Host Charles Carrillo combines decades of real estate investing experience with a professional background in international banking to interview experts in all areas of U.S. real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Charles Carrillo. Welcome to another episode of the Global Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Carrillo. Today we have Joseph Goslin. Joseph is a former lieutenant in the Israeli Defense Forces, and in 2015, Joseph began his multifamily journey and has since acquired six multifamily properties and has been serving as the asset manager for all six communities worth over $30 million with 505 units. So thank you so much for being on the show, Joseph. Thanks for having me, Charles. So what was your background prior to starting to uh, invest in real estate? Uh, so I have a background in software. I have 17 years uh, career in software development and software management. And I got to higher level roles with corporations like JCPenney and GameStop and so on. Uh, but I've always had this passion for real estate. It, it started all the way back when I was still a student. And I, like everybody else, I read Rich Dad Poor Dad, right? That's where it all started. Um, and then when we moved to the States in 07, um, kind of everything blew up around us. It was the best time to kind of, we realized it was the best time. Uh, both me and my wife got licensed and uh, as real estate agents in Texas. And then we kind of started doing a little single and a duplex here and there until we realized somewhere around 2015, like you said, we realized that's not the way to go. And we wanted to graduate to commercial real estate. And that's how we got started at multifamily. So you guys are still brokers right now. Is that correct? That's part of your business? Yes, sir. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. So why did you choose real estate as your investment vehicle? Other than you said there was a lot of money in it and everything like that. When did you make the decision or make the uh, turn the corner and become an investor versus just a broker? Yeah. So actually we were brokers because we were investors, not the other way around. Okay. So uh, we wanted to invest. We were new in this country. We didn't know the rules, the laws, the, the procedures. So we said, okay, let's get licensed. We'll get access to the MLS. Back then there was no Zillow and, and realtor.com was updating like two days later and so on. <laughs> so we had access to the MLS. So that's, we, we actually got licensed because we wanted to invest, not the other way around. And I'm an engineer in training. Uh, my mind is wired like an engineer. So when I came to uh, realized that, okay, my engineering career is getting along nicely and I'm going to have some extra income to invest. Then I went to town researching, right? Uh, I, I looked at everything from stock markets, commodities, oil and gas, uh, gold and silver, you name it. I looked forex trading. I looked at everything and real estate was the one that made the most sense to me. So what was your first real estate investment? What happened? What went right? What went wrong? Uh, so the, the first one was actually like an accidental investment, right? So we were a young couple and that was back home in Israel. And back home, it's very common for young couples that get married to buy an apartment or a condo or something like that. And Israel is very urban. Think like Brooklyn, New York right kind of an environment right so uh, a lot of block buildings um, so we were living in a one-bedroom apartment that was about 500 square foot just the two of us and then we bought something that we kind of planned forward and it was like four bedroom apartment uh, that was a lot bigger 
and then that was after we read Rich Dad Poor Dad, and it's kind of like, okay, do we move into this and make it a liability when it's just the two of us? We don't have any kids yet, right? Or do we stay in that small apartment we're renting, um, stay below our means, and lease the, the apartment out? And we chose to do that. And, you know, when you start doing that and you realize that, okay, we paid the mortgage, we paid taxes, we paid everything else, and there's still something left in your hand, it's going like, okay, there's something into that real estate <laughs> thing, right? So uh, that's how we got started. But when we moved to the States in 07 and realized that, you know, everything is blowing up around us and like people think that out-of-state investing is hard, right? Uh, trying to do that uh, remotely when we didn't really have, uh, back in Israel, you don't have property management that is as established as, it, as here, right? You don't have people that will take care of everything for you for a certain percentage like we have here in the States. So it, it was a lot harder managing that way. So we basically sold that asset over there, brought the money to the States and started investing in the States. Yeah. When I speak to uh, investors in Israel, then first thing I usually hear is that it's very difficult to cash flow on certain real estate investments. Is that yeah. how, just a little side note? I mean, how does that? I mean, how does that work? Well, like I said, Israel is a very tight urban environment, uh, so it's going to be really tough for you to cash flow in Miami, or cash mm -hmm. flow in New York City, or cash flow in LA, or Seattle, right? So, so mm -hmm. think those markets that's Israel pretty much, okay. right? High demand, low inventory. Um, Israel is about this big <laughs> compared <laughs> to the States, right? Uh, um, so, so it's super tiny. Uh, there's not a lot of land, so everything is super condensed and very expensive. Right. So it's like in those, in those high demand um, primary markets that we have in the United States, that's what you can compare it to. Exactly. And you, you on, put on top of that uh, mentality so over here in the States, people are comfortable with renting, right? It mm -hmm. um, doesn't matter what age they are. Uh, back in Israel, there is that mentality, that psychology of you got to own your own place. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I don't want to get into what the roots of all this thing is, just <laughs> is, right? Uh, so um, that's why there's a higher preference for purchase, which means there's a lot less rental properties. No, that makes perfect sense. I just, it gives us a great background on, uh, on your strategy. And uh, what is your current strategy for you and your firm right now, EPG or EBG for what you like targeting? Um, what is your criteria? Yeah, so we're now in a phase where we focus on multifamily. Uh, we've done the singles. Uh, we walk that path. There is some sort of a fallacy in the single family cash flow. Uh, because you cash for one month, two months, three months, six months, a year, two, and then you have a big ticket item, right? You either have a tenant move out and you got to renovate the, the, the property, or you have a water heater or a roof or a fence or anything like that. And uh, my trigger was back in 2015, like I had one property that I had to dump about $45,000 in a span of six months. Wow. So... Uh, um, that was one of the reasons where we started researching commercial real estate. I knew I want to stay in real estate, right? But I looked at all the other kinds of real estate and multifamily made the most sense because if you have a property with a hundred units, you can have 10 of them vacant and you still pay mortgage and you still have revenue and you still pay all the salaries and you do everything. It doesn't impact as much because it's only 10% vacancy. 
But if you have a duplex and what's one side is empty, yeah, 50% vacancy. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, so that's why multifamily made more sense to us. And then we brought um, a property on our own, a very small one on our own, kind of got the hang of it, then brought a few investors into the, the, the loop and bought a 102 unit. And then from there, it rolled into everything we have right now. Our portfolio is a little bit over 500 units. Nice. Yeah, it's very difficult to have the consistent income with the single family homes, unless you have, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of them. But it's much easier, like you said, acquiring your 100 unit apartment complex, or um, even if they're smaller apartment complexes, where you can, like you said, you know, you can have 10% of the people not there not paying and uh, still be able to cash flow and uh, cover debt service and your property manager and everybody else. Exactly. So has your acquisition criteria and uh, changed at all during COVID? Uh, no, COVID was a, um, was a, a curveball, right? Nobody saw that coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, our challenge in COVID is less with the resident and more with Congress people and, and you know, the, the knee-jerk decision that they do. Uh, and, and I have a, a, you know, uh, I have a beef with, with the, the CARES Act, right? Uh, I think that caused more damage to the country's economy than anything else, right? Than the virus could have ever done. Um, the, the small businesses were hurt dramatically in this, in, in this entire pandemic thing. And the fact that they gave $600 extra for uh, unemployment caused the fact that the employees that were on the lower end of the wages, which is what the small business owner is dependent on, would make a lot more money sitting at home. Right. So so I think that caused a lot more damage to the economy than anything else. Um, But the real estate side of things haven't been affected really. Um, Yes, we had a bunch of residents that we couldn't evict, but the ones that cared about who they are, about their credit score, about their, their living space, were communicating with us. They were talking to us. We were working with them. We were putting payment arrangement. Uh, we uh, gathered a list of um, uh, assistance organization. Mm-hmm. And a lot of our residents got the assistance. Uh, it might have came a month, two later uh, um, down the road, but as long as we knew they're applying and they worked with us and we gave them all the information they need to apply, we eventually got the money back. Right. Um, uh, but there are some residents that, you know, took advantage. And, and we have that in all the classes of, of multifamily. We've seen that all the way from C to A. Uh, you tell someone on the news that they don't have to pay rent. And, and that's what they hear. They don't hear that they will have to pay it at the end. They don't hear that they will get evicted and they'll have an eviction on the record at some point. They just hear you don't have to pay rent. Um, so, so you have those that take advantage of the situation and, and all that. Uh, but we've already evicted most of those when the CARES Act was over. And it wasn't that much, right? Out of our 500 and something, maybe five that we had to evict. Right. So it wasn't that big of an impact. Yeah, we've seen the same thing. We haven't seen many people abusing it as you always think the negative <laughs> of people when you hear about it, you're like, oh my God, this is going to be devastating to our business, to our investors, to everything. And, um, you know, the only thing I really get worried myself is when you don't have the communication, right? And you don't have the communication with them. 
And that goes people, you know, with people that are owning you money of whatever it is. Once they kind of disappear, that's when you know there's going to be trouble. If you yep. have someone that's calling you, fine, let's work something out. Let's change it to weekly. Let's whatever it is, it's going to work for you. Um, where, you know, because the whole thing as well with the CARES Act is then they, they say all this stuff and they say, oh, well, the tenant still owes the money. And, and you know, I mean, it's, you're just never going to get that. So it's not yeah. even a thing. And I'm not going to wait for someone in my property to get the money back. Like we'll just cut ties and it's gone. And, um, but yeah, you're able to, yeah, no, just realistically, you know, if you have a C-class environment uh, property, then they'll never be able to catch up on a five, $6,000 debt. They just won't. Exactly. Um, I, I had a conversation, um, just keeping the same theme about the COVID impact, uh, with one of our brokerage clients, he's buying a commercial property right now. And, uh, he asked me, well, what do you think is going to be the impact? A lot of people are talking about massive foreclosure waves coming in mm. because of all of the forbearance. I don't see that happening, no. right? Because all the forbearance basically means is that people didn't pay their mortgages for a few months, right? So if you Wells Fargo and you say, let's say you have 100,000 of those uh, mortgages on, on, on the forbearance right now, and now things start to normalize and people get their jobs back and, and the world's starting to open again, you have two options. You can get your litigation team working and your REO team working and the logistics team working to evict and, and take over and deal with the paperwork and then list them and sell those. Or you can go to that homeowner and say, hey, look, Mr. Homeowner, you didn't pay six months worth of mortgage. That's, let's say, $7,000. We're just going to drop it into your principal and we'll move forward together. Right? Realistically, that's going to be a much easier way for them to do that, which will allow a lot of people to keep their homes in place. And I don't see big waves of foreclosures coming in the near future. Yeah, tacking on to the end, I think they might have you, they're going to have you catch up on your escrow, uh, principal taxes and stuff like that. But uh, they, it's easy just to tack it to the end. And they can work that out. Um, and obviously, it's not as bad as every time you keep on hearing and people opening up, people are getting their jobs back. So I don't see too much of an issue. The other thing, too, is I don't keep people keep on telling me and I keep on hearing that there's going to be uh, a huge uh, disruption with multifamily. And I feel that the only pullback we're going to see is on small multifamily, where people might be refinancing. Um, or people that don't have the long-term debt. Maybe they took something out that only had a five-year term or something shorter, and they bought it a few years ago and it hasn't, their property hasn't stabilized or they, their balance sheet isn't looking as good, their income statement isn't looking as good as it was when they purchased it. So when going back for refinancing, they might have to take money out of their pocket. But for the larger assets, I feel, you know, anything with Fannie or Freddie Mac agency debt, I don't think you're going to have too much of a, too much of a, um, too much of an issue there. I don't think it's going to be a huge. Uh, I don't even see. Yeah. I don't even see an issue with the small one. We're in the process of refinancing a, a 44 unit right now. Mm -hmm. Yes, it was painful to go through quite mm -hmm. a few lenders to to find the right one, but we're getting 75% LTV. So I don't I don't see that impact. And it's a secondary market, right? So it's not yeah. even a major market. Um, so I I don't see really don't see that um, even in 2008. Um, and you, you got to a point, a lender would give you a loan. You wouldn't be right. happy with it, but you would still get a loan. And then just make sure you don't have a prepayment penalty, wait a year or two, and you can refinance again. So yeah. Uh, I, what I'm I, saying I for like smaller properties, it was more like uh, like five to 10 unit properties. 
like the very small commercial multifamily kind of stuff. That's where you have to deal with commercial, have to deal with a commercial bank. You can't go to agency lender. That's where I'm going to see it. We, I mean, we're getting was actually a, a commercial bank. That's what I was talking about. Oh, it was. About okay, right nice. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Uh, because Freddie is actually panicking more right now than the commercial banks. We talked to Freddie um, and they were stuck somewhere at the 65% LTV. Wow. Uh, but here's my experience with the small properties versus the big properties. Um, if you have a 10 unit property and you're at 70% occupancy, right? It only means you got to turn three units, right? At least three units. How hard can it be? Right. So, so restabilizing a smaller property is a lot easier than restabilizing a 300 unit property. Right. It's yeah. going to be faster. It's going to be cheaper and you can turn around to your lender and say, Hey, look, stabilize. Right. No, for sure. Yeah, no, I, I just, I don't see there's, everything is so competitive right now and it hasn't changed. I think some, some people took off a couple of months when COVID started because they didn't know what was going to happen, but uh, it was like the 90 days of COVID I call it. And uh, after that, people were start buying again. Um, we, you know, we, we saw what was happening with our properties we already had and we're using that as the kind of bearing, you know what I mean? Of where we were. And, um, we really, just like you, I mean, we didn't really see too much of an issue. So, um, but with you being a, uh, you know, an analytical person, what systems have you put in place to make it more efficient and uh, to manage over 500 units? So we have a property management software. Uh, it's called Resmin. Um, it's one of the popular one out there. Um, and, but all those tools out there, it doesn't matter if you're working with Resmin or RealPage or Intrada or anyone of, uh, any one of the big ones, they all have a ton of capabilities. What I learned is that our on-site teams don't leverage even half of the capabilities. Mm. So what, what I found is it's less about the tool, it's a lot more about the training and helping them figure out how to find things easier, how to do things faster, how to work smarter rather than harder. Mm -hmm. um, so um, leverage the tools that you have, is it's gonna be a lot easier. Um, and then of course, you gotta keep tight control over expenses, you gotta ask the questions, right? So we have a process for collections, but if you don't stay on top of it, well, did you do this, did you do that? What's going on here? Why is that resident hasn't paid, right? And so on, then there's just so much going on on these properties on any given day that they, they, they'll drop the ball. So uh, part of, well, we also have a property management companies uh, um, and that's pretty recent from this year. Uh, we started just before COVID, uh, great timing, right? <laughs> um, and, and then um, I hired our VP of property management and she sits on them, right? And she makes sure everybody's doing their job and we have a process and they follow the process. So it's less about the tools and more about the processes and the follow-up. That's what I learned in this thing. Okay. Awesome. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. Um, so you were, you're a broker, you're asset management, property manager. What mistakes do you commonly see other real estate investors make? Um, okay. I'll give you two that goes both ways. Right. So on the, the one side, uh, people, um, get stuck on a number. I'm looking for a cap rate. I'm looking for occupancy. I'm looking for cash on cash. I'm looking for a number and whatever number you're going to pick, I'm, I can show you seven examples of how that number would be great, but everything else will be bad. 
right? So uh, the, the best example I like to give is the cap rate. Everybody's looking for, I want this cap rate, I want that cap rate. Well, if I give you a, a skyscraper downtown Manhattan for a million dollars, are you going to buy it? Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely, right? Give me two. Well, it's vacant. <laughs> you still buying it? Yeah, for sure. But it's zero cap rate. <laughs> right? So context is more important than getting hung up on, on just one number. Um, so, so that's one of the mis major mistakes I've seen uh, uh, investors do is don't realize that when they get hung up on a single number, A, they can have a mistake and B, they can miss a lot of good opportunities. Um, the, the other side of things is investors only focus on whatever comes out in cash flow, but sometimes there's other benefits of owning real estate, uh, like somebody pays down the equity, right? If you buy stocks, nobody's paying down equity, right? right? There's a lot of tax benefits to real estate. Uh, if you're a real estate professional, then they are 10 times more, right, than everything else. But if, even if you're not a real estate professional, you still, all the income that you get, if you have the right CPA, would be practically tax-free as opposed to your ordinary income, right? If you're a high net, uh, you know, an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer or whatever, you'll be making a good money. You'll be paying 40% of your salary in taxes. So, um, uh, and then I always get asked, well, why shouldn't I invest in stocks, right? Apple uh, or whatever. And I tell them, look, stocks have really, really good potential, right? If you look at the stock market, Look at Apple. Apple just quadrupled their value in the last four years, right? Uh, but two really, really bad things happen uh, if you want to get your money back, right? So if you bought your Apple stock and it went 4X in the last four years, it's good for you. But that's on paper. Mm -hmm. That's not real money. If you want to see real money, you're going to have to sell your stocks. And two, things, two really bad things happen when you sell your stocks. One, you no longer have an asset, right? And there's no way you can buy another Apple for the price you paid four years ago, right? So, so that's one bad thing. The other thing is two minutes after you sell that profit, uh, those stocks, Uncle Sam comes knocking and he wants a chunk of it, right? So I don't like stocks for that reason because when you look at the real estate side of things, right, you, you buy a property four or five years down the road, you've... Hey, You've gained equity in it. The market went up when the, the tenant paid the equity down. You go and refi, you get in a loan. A loan is a non-taxable event. So two great things happen when you refi a property, right? You get your money out, but you still have an asset and you don't pay taxes. Yeah. It's, it's, I feel it's the best investment as well when you're commercial multifamily. So it's uh, definitely true. What, what do you think are the main factors that have contributed to your success, Joseph? Um, so a lot of it is um, timing, right? So when we got started here in this country, it was 2007 and eight. So it was the bottom, but I want to take a little bit of credit, right? In realizing that when everything is around us in flame, that's the best time of our lifetime to invest, right? I know a lot of people that had money back then that I told them, you should be coming and investing with us. And they were so scared and sat on the sideline side and they regret it till today. Yeah. Uh, 
and I always say there's only two kinds of investors uh, uh, that survived 2008. The ones that made a killing and the ones that wish they invested more. <laughs> uh, so, so I think that was a lot of it. And the other thing is um, just being conservative in their underwriting and making sure that I cover all my bases that I, especially in multifamily, right? You want to know where your break-even point is. Is it a 10% vacancy? Is it a 30% vacancy? Is that 50% vacancy? What is that point where I can still pay the mortgage? I can still pay the salaries. I can still pay the bills and keep the property, right? So if you're going to a market and the market is, let's say 93, 95% occupancy and your break-even point is at 90, you can get in trouble real fast. Um, and, and, you know, that's just, you don't know what's going to happen, right? Uh, um, a new property can be built half a mile away. And in the first year, they're going to do a lease-up specials. That's going to hurt your occupancy, but it's a little bump on the road, right? Uh, it's going to come right back up in a year when they um, uh, stop doing those specials. Right. But if your break-even point is within three points away from where the market is, you're going to be in trouble. Right. So, so conservative underwriting is also something that help us um, navigate through ups and downs. What, what do you like to see for a break even? Let's just say, for example, maybe it's not when you're taking over the property, but let's say after you initially have stabilized it, um, what are you looking for? Something around 80%? Um, well, that, that highly depends on the market, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're, let's say, uptown Dallas, where it's super hot, right? Uh, or Austin, the hot areas of Austin, if the market is at 98, 99, 97, right? I'm not gonna underwrite it for 70% because I'm just never gonna be able to buy a property. But if the market is at 89, 90, 91, I will underwrite it for 70, so I'll, be, I'll have that margin. So it really depends on what the market is on the average in the last few years. What is my risk tolerance at the time? What is my investor's risk tolerance? Because a different investor profile could determine a different underwriting, right? Um, so, so that's really where um, the answer to that one is depends. But uh, um, uh, we went all the way down to 70 in some of ours. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense because some investors want to have the cash flow. Some of them want the big payday, um, don't care about getting the quarterly or monthly distribution. And some of them want a little bit of each. And everybody has a different investment philosophy and everybody's in a different place in their wealth plan too. Some yeah. are preserving and some are still building. So, um, you know, that's, that makes perfect sense. It's a great answer. Um, I mean, we like the same thing. Uh, we've, we underwrite, if we're underwriting something that normally is in the low 90s, uh, mid 90s, we might be looking for low 80s or high 70s. And um, it gives you that spread just in case of a COVID or something, or the next thing that's like a COVID, let's say, comes around, you have enough, uh, enough wiggle room there where everybody's getting paid. And, um, you know, you're still, you're, you're, the property's still cash flowing. Yeah, and, and that's really where it's kind of like uh, a lot of properties got impacted by COVID, right? And uh, we've heard some people say, uh, well, I had an underwriting that was supposed to be recession proof. Well, we're not in a recession. We're in a pandemic. It's a whole different world. But in a recession, I can still evict uh, uh, people that don't pay and bring people that can pay. Right now, we couldn't evict anybody, right? Mm -hmm. So, And we just didn't have the income. 
but that doesn't mean you don't pay the hot water bill, right? And you don't pay the water bills and you don't pay the electricity. You got to pay all these as well, right? Your landscaper doesn't care that it's COVID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, for sure. I see the same thing um, because people, that's a mistake I see people make as well, is they're comparing COVID to 2008 to early 90s to interest rates in the early 80s. And it's completely night and day. It doesn't matter. Every, every, every recession is going to be different. There's different... Um, you know, every, there's different points that have made that there's different criteria that made it that problem and why there was a recession, why there's a pullback there. So it's very, I think, um, it's not accurate to, to compare them, like you said. So, yeah. So how can our listeners learn more about you and your company, Joseph? Yeah. So, um, ebgacquisitions.com, that's our, uh, acquisition group, uh, eurekabusinessgroup.com. That's our brokerage. Um, but really all you have to do is Google my name and you can find all of the connections to everything. I'm on every social media possible. I'm always open to talk to, uh, investors, foreign or domestic. Uh, yeah, that's not a problem. I'm easy to find. Okay. That sounds great. Well, thank you so much for being on today. I'll put all the links to Joseph and his companies in the show notes. And thank you so much for being on today, Joseph, and looking forward to connecting with you in the future. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Hi guys, it's Charles from the Global Investors Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you're interested in getting involved with real estate, but you don't know where to begin, set up a free 30-minute strategy call with me at ScheduleCharles.com. That's ScheduleCharles.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Global Investor Podcast. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe on iTunes or Google Play to get new weekly episodes. For more resources and to receive our newsletter, please visit globalinvestorpodcast.com. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode. Nothing in this episode should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Any investment opportunities mentioned on this podcast are limited to accredited investors. Any investments will only be made with proper disclosure, subscription documentation, and are subject to all applicable laws. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for individualized advice. Opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have the potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of Harborside Partners Incorporated exclusively.